Welcome to Basic Doctrine of the Bible. The teaching series within this podcast is a part of the Basic Discipleship Program. In 2 Timothy 3.16, the Bible says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Our hope is that this material will encourage you to have a great appreciation and respect for God's Word. Now, let's join today's lesson. Hey, welcome to this session of Basic Doctrine of the Bible. We're in session number nine, lesson number nine, and we're focusing in this session on translation, Bible translation. We've learned that God used a certain method of delivering the Bible to us. The Bible was originally written, uh, then it was copied, it was preserved, in time, through a process we know as canonization, the church discovered uh, what books belong in the Bible. And then the Bible, in time, was translated. Translated from its original languages into other languages. So that people like us, who uh, don't speak Koine Greek or Hebrew, can understand the Word of God. So it's really important for disciples, if they want to really be strong in their understanding of God's Word, to to be aware of that process of how we've got, how we've received the Bible. But then with that, uh, disciples need to have some knowledge about Bible translation so that they can have a mature approach uh, to considering what Bible to use, what Bible translation to use, and so that they can uh, be mature and thoughtful as they uh, study the Bible and consider word meanings. There are, there are a lot of folks who make a big deal out of words, or I would say a too big of a deal. There's people I would call semantic police when it comes uh, to the Christian faith. And certainly words are important, but it seems that there are people who become too stringent in this matter. Again, semantic police. They seem to think that God has an English dictionary up in heaven by which he judges uh, the words and thoughts of English-speaking Christians as if we are bound to the English language. We We have to be very careful here. Again, words bring meaning, but we've got to avoid this extreme Um, We've got to avoid a certain type of legalism that places too much weight on our language, as if God himself is an English speaker and that you have to speak English to be a strong, mature Christian. So so it's important in all of this that that we have some basic information to help us understand what's gone into translating and how we can go about choosing a Bible translation. One has said this, once any human becomes a judge of the word, it is dethroned as the authoritative word of God in the life of that person. That's what many people do, unfortunately, when it comes to their approach to Bible translations. They have a philosophy, a box in which they operate, a perspective they bring to the word of God, and then they force the word of God into their mold. And then they force others into their mold. And many times sinfully, self-righteously judge others based on their perspective. So so we want to be careful of that, that we don't dethrone the Word of God. 
However, at the same time, Christians are responsible to make prudent choices about the Bible they read and obey. Great statement. So let's talk about some of the views regarding Bible translation. And before we do, let's just reference Psalm 119, 147. There the psalmist said, I rise up before dawn and cry out for help. I put my hope in your word. So we're going to be sharing a lot of information here that I think will help you as a disciple. But let's remember the heart of the psalmist. Let's remember Jesus' desire for us, John 17, 17. He wants us to be sanctified by his truth. And may we, like the psalmist, be able to say, truly, Lord, I put my hope in your word. Well, let's talk about three views regarding translations. You find most Christians fall into one of three camps. First of all, there are some who hold to what I would call a dogmatism for one translation. A dogmatism for one translation. Now, normally in the English-speaking world, this dogmatism centers on the King James Version of the Bible. And so we have what is known as the King James only view. And there are people who are very passionate, very dogmatic, and very exclusive in their adherence to this view. Now, certainly, there are great things to be said about the King James Version. The Lord used it powerfully in history. He still continues to use it. There's a lot to be said for the King James Version. It is indeed a wonderful translation of the Bible. Unlike any other English translation, it is written with a degree of meter and rhythm it's translated with a degree of meter and rhythm that makes it very easy to memorize. I'm one who used this translation as a young age, at a young spiritual age, and I found that I easily memorized a lot of scripture just by reading it because of the rhythm and the meter of the translation. So there's a lot of good things to be said about the King James Version. You could also talk about how it does have distinct language that we don't use nowadays. And because of that, linguists will tell you distinctiveness with words make those words stick in your mind more. So I believe this for English-speaking people, if they can understand the King James Version, the, the words of this translation seem to stick in one's minds more effectively because it is, in some ways, strange language, something we don't use on an everyday basis. So there's a lot of good things to say here. And then we just think about how the Lord used it in the Americas during great awake, a great awakening. And, um, and we know for many who have maybe a Christian heritage, you have parents, grandparents who cherish this translation and read it to you. So there's so many good things we could say here. However, we have to be on guard against this view that says, other Bible translations are perversions and corruptions of the Word of God, and that the King James Version is the only Word of God for English-speaking people. This type of view in its, most, in its greatest extreme would even teach that one cannot be saved apart from preaching or teaching that comes from the King James Version of the Bible. There are people who take that extreme 
view. And they'll take a psalm says that, that says your word is perfect, O Lord, converting the soul. And they'll say, you can't be converted unless a King James verse is quoted to you ahead of time. So it's an extreme view. There's even extremists who would teach, believe it or not, you can find this, search for it on YouTube. There are people who would say that individuals who don't speak English to truly understand the word of God need to learn English and then read the King James Version of the Bible. It's crazy, crazy views out there. So there, this is an extreme view. Dogmatism for one translation. Now, let me say this within this idea of a dogmatism for one translation. I believe it's fine to have a wholly sincere preference for a certain translation. I mean, if you ask me, what is my favorite translation? I would give you a preference and I would give you reasons as to why. However, I seek to be on guard against a dogmatism that would exclude others. Now, I'll even speak to why I don't like some translations. But even then, I'm careful against a dogmatism that potentially could speak evil of the Word of God and God's ordained means of delivering the Word of God to us. So three views. One is this dogmatism for one translation. A second view would be what I call a careful openness to new translations and a variety of translation. This is personally the view I hold. I'm very careful about what version of the Bible I use. I seek to look at who was on the translation team, what philosophy of translation did they use, what Greek manuscripts were consulted, what Hebrew manuscripts were consulted when producing the translation. And I really believe this is where most Christians should be. We should respect older translations. We should respect ancient manuscripts that may not be the best manuscripts. But at the same time, we have to realize that new translations are helpful and needed. All the while, we must seek to be faithful, conscientious, and wise concerning what translation we use. So that's another view. You've got dogmatism. You've got careful openness to new translations. Then there's some who have what I would call just an approach of extreme liberty, extreme liberty and their use of translations. They, all, they almost seem to give no thought to the fact that there are original languages. They almost seem to give no thought to that words actually carry meaning and words are important. And so they have this view that, hey, just pick whatever you want to use. And sometimes there can be confusion in churches because there is this just kind of wide open approach to, hey, it really doesn't matter. Listen, words do matter. The original manuscripts do matter. We, we've got to be careful and conscientious as we seek to pick a translation. I believe it's even good for a church to consider um, recommending one translation amongst the membership. Not enforcing, not coming off as dogmatic concerning one translation, but to, to recommend, hey, here is a translation we use. Here's why we use it. And we recommend in most of our ministries that everybody get on the same page. Why? So that as the church engages in scripture memory, 
as this, as the church engages in discipleship and teaching, there is continuity and consistency throughout the church. I think that can be helpful. So this extreme liberty and use of translations can even open the floodgates to where there are um, there are changes within translations involving gender, involving uh, different uses of personal pronouns that would really put God and his word really in a strange place. We have to realize that certain words were used and that personal pronouns were used in reference to God, to the church, for good reason. So we get to extreme liberty and we think that Instead of saying brothers as the apostles did, we can just add brothers and sisters. We have to be careful with that. We do believe that the word of God was inspired and that every jot and every tittle has been inspired by God and promised to be preserved by God. So we have to be very careful. So I would be on guard against dogmatism for one translation. And then I would be on guard against the extreme liberty of use in translations and I would seek to land on careful openness and use of translation. All right? So those are some views regarding translation. Let me give you quickly two issues in choosing a Bible translation. Many think it's just all about um, the translation. Now, unfortunately, some, it's all about nowadays, does this translation have a good app to go along with it? Um, I've been tempted to do that. Wow, I like the app they have for this one translation. Or sometimes it can be, what does the Bible look like? Do I like the cover? Do they have colorful covers? Do they have a certain type of leather, this publishing company? Uh, We have to be aware of the two primary issues that should be driving our thoughts in this, this issue. Number one, we need to remember this idea of the text. The text. See, before your Bible was translated, translators used a certain set of Greek text or Hebrew text from which they translated. And see, the text is an issue. There are different Greek texts that are often, excuse me, there are different texts that are often used for translation. Now, remember this. The Bible was written primarily in three languages, Hebrew, predominantly the Old Testament, Aramaic, portions of the Old Testament, and then we have Greek in the New Testament. So the Bible was originally written in those three languages. We learned through our lessons on copying and preservation that then copies were made and circulated amongst the people of God. Now, for the New Testament, uh, there are now, we now have volumes that compile, that compile the New Testament after having pulled from many of those copies that are out there, many of the manuscripts. And here's a very important point. We do not have any of the original manuscripts. We have copies that were made of the original manuscripts. And there are variations, changes, and alterations to very small degrees amongst the different manuscripts. These changes, variations, alterations do not affect any major Christian doctrine and they do not place the Bible in error at any point. However, through a process we call textual criticism, scholars have sought to determine when they look at variations, 
which Greek text seems to be the most trustworthy. They look at dates as they do this. They also look at logic. Okay, if a name is missing here or a name is not present when it is in another manuscript, or if there is this phrase added on, based on good logic and research, what do we think happened here? Let's use the wits God has given us. Does it seem that a copyist might have added something for emphasis, just a couple words? Does it seem like a copyist may have been trying to support a particular doctrine and added something to make it appear like the original author was speaking of the Trinity? We believe that happened in 1 John chapter 2 along the way. So, so through this process called te- textual criticism, scholars have seeked to determine, okay, what really is closest to the original manuscripts. Nowadays, when it comes to the the Greek, we have basically two volumes, one called the Texas Receptus and one called the Critical Text. Know this, the King James Version, New Testament there, and New King James draw primarily from the Texas Receptus. Other modern translations draw from the Critical Text. The Texas Receptus was compiled by a guy named Erasmus, He did not have as many of the ancient manuscripts to draw from when he created his Texas Receptus, or the traditional text, the received text. Later, others compiled the critical text. Two guys named Westcott and Hort were involved in this. They took into consideration newer finds, newer discoveries to create the critical text. And so we have these two texts to draw from. Know if you're using the King James or if you're using the New King James, the Texas Receptus was the primary source used. If you're using another modern translation, the critical text was the primary one used. And that's why you sometimes see alterations, variations. You see in these newer translations, uh, the editor saying, hey, such and such did not appear in the older manuscripts, and as a result, there's a footnote in your Bible. And know that none of those changes affect major doctrines, the gospel, or the overall story of Scripture. You can still trust in the Word of God that is without error, that it has been preserved for you, and that is indeed powerful, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So the text is your first issue. The second issue is that of translations. All right. Did you know this? In 1380, a man by the name of John Wycliffe produced the first English translation of the Bible. Two years later, he produced an English translation of the Old Testament. So, sorry, first translation of the New Testament came in 1380. 1382, John Wycliffe translated uh, the Bible, the Old Testament. So, Here's what's unique about John Wycliffe's translations. They were translated from Latin, the Vulgate that Jerome had produced. It was not until later that we received, under a man named William Tyndale, translations from the original language. Now know this about William Tyndale. Because of his efforts to translate the Bible into English, he was burned alive at the stake. Uh, the, the government in England had him put to death. Why? Because this was seemed 
This seemed controversial to give common people the Bible and their language. It was thought that only the priest could handle the Word of God and that it needed to remain in Latin, a language that only the elite could understand. So John Wycliffe, even as he burned at the stake, it's told that he cried out, Lord, open the King of England's eyes as he burned in flames. It was just a few years later that in 1611, the King, King James, commissioned the translation of the King James Bible. So that took place in 1611. Like, just a little over 400 years ago. And all of Christendom, it's just 400 years ago that we have a translation of the Bible in our language authorized by government. The 20th century then, we've had a plethora of new Bible translations that have been produced. So you've got these two issues. You have the text, and then you have translation. Translation, the text, is the original the original. The, the original languages, copies of the original manuscripts and the original languages. And then we take that, we translate it, we bring it from an original language into a new language. The, the language in which someone speaks, right? So now here's what's important to know. As we translate, there are a few different philosophies people use in translating. The first would be called, big words, formal equivalents. Formal equivalence. This is the idea of a word-for-word translation, being as close to the original as possible. Now, know this, some people will advocate for, man, I want a, a translation that's as close to the original as possible. Taking Greek and putting it into English gives a very wooden and awkward translation. So you need some degree of rearranging verbs and nouns and helping with the flow. Okay, but at the same time, there are translations out there that to the best of their ability, give a more word for word translation. The New American Standard Bible is one that seeks to do just that. Okay, there's one out there called the Young's Literal Translation. You can look it up online and read it and you'll see that it is very awkward in a way, but the translator sought to give a very, very, um, very word-for-word translation, something very faithful to the original text. Number two, you have formal equivalence, then you have dynamic equivalence. The motto of this translation is thought for thought. Okay, so formal equivalence is word-for-word, dynamic equivalence is thought for thought. The New International Version, the NIV, would be an example of this. You know, here you border on some interpretation of words in order to help give understanding. Now, personally, I seek to be careful with that. I like, I like the idea of, okay, we want the original word, and then we do the work of understanding it because God gave that word or that concept for a reason. So here's an example. 1 John 2.16, King James says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eye and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. The New International Version seeks to give thought for thought there. It seeks to interpret the meaning of the lust of the flesh. So it says this, For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. So you have really 
the idea of a thought for thought there. You have some interpretation going on. Now, I prefer, this is my preference to say, let's stick with the words God used, lust of the flesh, and then let's seek to understand those and to learn what they mean. Because I do believe there's evidence in Scripture that the Lord was involved in the actual words used, the words given to the prophets, apostles, and even Jesus. All Scripture comes by inspiration of God. So we, we have to be careful that we don't do the work of interpreting. That's my opinion. That's my conviction. So you have formal equivalents, dynamic equivalents. Third, you have the idea of a paraphrase. And really, 1 John 2, 16 bordered on this with the way it interpreted the lust of the flesh as the cravings of sinful man. But paraphrase, really a paraphrase goes even further. The idea here is meaning for meaning. Here's an example of a paraphrase, the message. And and I I would encourage you, you know, the message could be good to try to get the understanding of a verse if you're having a hard time understanding it. But I don't think it would be wise to use it as your primary Bible. It's not even a translation. It is a paraphrase of English. The consultation the original, the, the producer of the message gave to the original language wasn't that intense. So, so here's the idea of John 3.16. I use this because it's a verse many of us know. This is how much God loved the world. He gave His Son, His one and only, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in Him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. So this is a paraphrase. There's a lot of words added that are not in the original text and the original language, and the author is seeking to give people understanding. It's almost what I would do when teaching. I would try to give people the meaning of the word. So this perhaps is helpful at times for helping people understand verses they can't understand. I think it's more helpful to have a Bible that's closer to the original language. Okay, let me close with this. Let me give you some guiding principles for picking a translation. Remember this, first of all, the Bible, God's word is perfect. God promised to give us his word. He promised to keep it without error, to preserve it forever. He ordained a process through which copyists, faithful scribes kept the word for us. And Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The psalmist speaks of the word of God being like silver refined in an earthen vessel, purified seven times. It is perfect. So as you pick a good translation, know this, you can trust the word of God that it has been preserved and kept for you and it is perfect. It can do its work, a powerful work in your life. Remember this number two, God never said in his word that there would be one superior translation. God never promised that there would be an English translation uh, given to humanity that would be the best and the one we should use. Don't live with a false guilt if someone has tried to convince you that they're spiritually a cut above you because they used the right Bible. Remember, God's word is inspired in the original language, original languages and translated into translations. Have you ever thought about this? Why do we not have an original copy of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi or of Matthew's gospel? Why do we have no original copies? I believe this. If we had the original copies, 
we would likely idolize them. Perhaps there would be people who would say, you're not really reading the word of God unless you're reading the papyrus that Paul wrote. So God did not preserve those original copies. Instead, he had this process of preserving the word of God through a multitude of copies and translations over the ages, showing that he's here to relate to everyone of all, every tribe and every tongue. And also, he's done this in order to show he is sovereign and he is Lord and he has a magnificent process of delivering his word. Jesus promised his word would endure, Matthew 24, 35, but he never endorsed one translation or one language as being authoritative or superior. I'd say this, remember this, number three, people need, this is important, people need to understand God's word. Did you know this? The Bible is not a magic book that you read and somehow just by through a cursory reading, you're spiritually transformed. In order for you to be changed by God's word, you've got to understand it. Go read Nehemiah chapter eight about the great revival in Nehemiah's day. When were the hearts of the people changed? When did the joy of the Lord become their strength? That's the chapter from which that phrase comes from. When did that happen? Go read it. It was when they understood God's word. So, so some have this idea that, boy, um, a translation is more reverent because it's hard to understand. Or this translation must be superior because it uses high-sounding words. Uh, know this. What people need is this. They need to understand God's word. God's word does not change, one has said, but languages and word meanings do. The only way God's word can continue to communicate as it should is to update our translations periodically. We know words change, right? Languages change. The English of 400 years ago is a lot different than the English of today. After a period of some 20 years, this author would advocate better ways of expressing the content of scripture should be available. Emotionally, some people react to any such changes as if they constitute tampering with God's word rather instead of representing a prayerful and careful concern that the reader benefit from the most accurate and appropriate expression of God's word possible. See, instead of judging new translations as if they're just a marketing ploy or as if it's an attempt to deceive people with a watered-down version of God's word, realize this, there's a need out there for people in their language to understand God's word. And I'll just give a word of testimony of someone who understands another language and can read another language other than my, my heart language or my mother language, English. Um, I would say this, that experience of reading daily the Bible in another language that is not my own has taught me sometimes we place too much weight on our English language. And sometimes we put God in this box as if um, he, he's got a talk like us. And we've played the semantic police. And many times the spirit of agnostics is alive and well in people who want to make one translation superior over another. They've just found a way to try to spiritually one-up other people. Certainly we need to make sure that our, our translations are faithful to the text. But we've got to avoid this overreaction. We need a heart to realize people need the Word of God and they need to understand the Word of God. 
Number four, remember those who use, and I, I give air quotes here, remember those who may use an inferior translation can still grow spiritually and love the Lord. I mean, I really believe this. The Word of God is powerful. And if a translation committee or someone with a paraphrase doesn't get their translation, their paraphrase perfect, God can still use the Word of God that's in there to change someone, to encourage someone, to build someone up, to convict a person of sin. So so be careful when you treat a translation as if it's trash or you speak evil of it. Know that the Word of God is still there, though there may be some translations that are not the best. And trust the Word of God. Have a belief in its power. And then number five, I would just end with this, and this gives a word of caution to the new translations out there. Remember, new isn't always best. So I spoke a little bit about marketing, and and indeed, there's a lot of darts thrown at modern publishing companies in America, like, wow, they're just trying to make money by producing their own translation that they can use in all of their literature. And some of that goes on to some degree. It's not necessarily all bad. But in the midst of all this, we we do need to remember and be careful. You know, I'm trying to give you two sides of the coin here, two extremes. At the same time, we need to be aware that new isn't always best. There's new translations coming out all the time. And sometimes there is an agenda with the translation. And we need to be careful. We need to be discerning. We need to be vigilant. God bless you as you read his word and as you seek to grow into grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us today for our lesson on basic doctrine of the Bible. Stay current with other episodes by subscribing to our podcast or visit us online at basicdiscipleship.net. If you have any questions about the materials presented in this lesson, or if you would like to give feedback, email us at info at basicdiscipleship.net. Thanks for listening.